Chapter Sixteen of Some Everyday Folk and Dawn by Miles Franklin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Advance Australia. In the career of a prodigy, there invariably comes a time when it is compelled to relinquish being very clever for a child and has to enter the business of life in competition with adults. This crisis had arrived in the career of the prodigy Australia. It is at the time of electing new or re-electing old representatives of the people to the legislature that the state of a country's affairs is more prominently before the public than at any other, and preceding the state election in which Grandma Clay was to exercise the full rights of citizenship for the first time, it was a lugubrious statement. That the country had gone to the dogs was averred by each candidate for the three hundred a year given ordinary state members and each described himself as the instrument by which it could be restored to a state of paradisiacal prosperity. This is an old bogey unfailingly revived at elections. The ministerialists invariably roar how they have improved the public finances, while the opposition as blatantly tries to drown them by bellowing that the retiring government has damned the country, and that the opposition has the only recipe of satisfactory reconstruction. But in spite of this threadbare election scare, the Commonwealth remained the freest and one of the wealthiest abiding places in the world. Just then its business affairs were undoubtedly badly managed, and mismanagement, if continued, inevitably leads to bankruptcy. Undeniably there was an unwholesome percentage of unemployed, inexcusable when there abounded vast areas of fertile territory, quite unpeopled mines as rich as any known to history all untouched, the sugar, grape, timber, and other industries crying aloud for further development, and countless resources on every hand requiring nothing but that these and men should meet on healthy and enterprising business terms. The population, instead of gaining in numbers, was foolishly leaving the country, like overindulged, spoiled children, imagining themselves ill-treated, while others hesitated to come in because the Australian trumpet was not blown loudly enough, nor in the right key. The administration, like a young housewife tossed into an overflowing storehouse, had spent lavishly, but the bank of a multi-millionaire will come to an end in time, and so with the play-days of Australia. The hour had arrived for her to be up and doing, to marshal her forces, advertise her wares, and take her place as a worker among the nations. There are always old bush lawyers and city know-alls beside, whom Chamberlain and Roberts are but small tomahawks as empire-builders, and these now were predicting that to make a nation of her, Australia needed war and many other disasters to harden her people from the amusement-loving, sunny-eyed folk they were. But this was an extremist's outlook. She was in greater need of a land law that would sensibly and practically put the right people on the soil and entice population of desirable class, independent producers, so that the development of the industries would follow in natural sequence. In short, Australia was languishing for a few patriotic sons with strong, clear business heads to apply the science of statecraft as distinguished from the self-seeking artifices of the mere job politician at present sapping her vitals, and all the elements for success were within her gates. I had long had an eye open for the discernment of such an embryo statesman, and looked forward with interest to the study of the present crop of political candidates. As soon as Leslie Walker, Ernest Breslaw's stepbrother, 
had been elected as the opposition candidate for Nanoon, canvassing, spouting, war-whooping, and all manner of barracking began with such intense enthusiasm that fortunately Miss Flipp's sad fate was speedily driven out of our thoughts. Dawn and Mrs. Bray were on Walker's committee, and nearly every night there was an advocate of one party or the other gasconading in Citizens' Hall. To Nanoon residents it became what the theatre is to city patrons of the drama, and more, for this was invested with the dignity of a certain amount of reality. To women being in the fray, many attributed the unusual interest distinguishing this campaign, but the real cause was that public affairs had come to such a deadlock that legislature, as the medium through which they might be moved, had become a vital question to the various numskull, and all were mustering to ascertain who put forth the most favourable policy. With politics and her newly started singing lessons, Dawn was too thoroughly engrossed for thought of any night to pierce her armour of indifference, which was the outcome of full mental occupation. I invested in a nice little piano that was carried upstairs to our big room, and had undertaken to superintend her practising, but she was a more enthusiastic politician than a vocal student, as I pointed out to her grandmother's satisfaction. These happenings had eventuated during the first fortnight of May, and in the third week of this month, Leslie Walker imported a couple of experienced ranters to renew the attack and announce the villainy of the present government in loud and blustering vote-catching war-whoops. In the town itself, nearly every third person was employed on the railway, and their only care in casting their vote was to secure a representative who would not in any way reduce the expenditure of the railways. Thus, a parliamentary candidate in Nanoon had to trim his sails to catch this large vote, or be defeated. It was the same with other factions. Any man with a common-sense platform, impartially for the good of the state at large, might as well have sat down at home and have saved himself the labour of stumping an electorate and bellowing himself hoarse for all the chance he had of being returned. We turned out en masse from Clay's to hear the second speech of young Walker, assisted by two MPs belonging to his party. Grandma and I drove in the sulky, while the girls and Andrew walked ahead, the latter under strict orders to behave with reason, and not make a fool of hisself with the larrikins. It was well we arrived early, as there was not sitting-room for half the audience, though more than half the hall being reserved for the ladies, we got a front seat, and long before the time for the speakers to appear, every corner was packed, and women, as well as men, were standing in rows fronting the stage. A great buzz of conversation at the front, and stampeding and catcalling among the youths at the back, was terminated by the arrival of the three speakers of the evening, who were received amid deafening cock-a-doodling, cheering, stamping and clapping. An old warrior of the class, dressed up to the position of MP, sat to one side, and next him was the barrister-type so prolific in Parliament, who had himself dressed down to the vulgar crowd while third sat Leslie Walker. Surely not the first Leslie Walker who had appeared a week or two previously. His bright, restless eye, though too sensitive for that of an old campaigner, now took in the crowd with complete assurance, and there was no hint of hesitation discernible. Having once smelt powder, he was ready for the fray. "'By Jove, hasn't Les bucked up?' whispered Ernest, who sat on one side of me. 
where he had landed after an ineffectual attempt to sit beside dawn yes if he can only roar and blow and wave his arms sufficiently he may have a chance but he's still nervous said the observant andrew from the rear you watch him go for that flea in the leg of his pants sitting in full view of a chiacking audience as a severe ordeal to an inexperienced campaigner with a sensitive temperament and this action indeed peculiarly like an attempt to detain an annoying insect in a fold of his lower garment was one of those little mannerisms adopted to give an appearance of ease behind the speakers came as chairman one of the swell class almost extinct in this region and he too had rather an effete attitude and physique as he took up his position behind the spindly table weighted by the smeared tumblers and water bottle he rose with the intention of flattering the speakers and audience in the orthodox way but the electors among whom a spirit of overflowing hilarity was at large took his duties out of his mouth don't smooge old cockroach let the other blokes blaze away as we the taxpayers are paying dear for this spouting the barrister man m p burst upon them first with the latest trumpet blare with which speeches were being opened having been primed as to the magnitude of the railway vote in Nunoon, first move was to throw a bone to it and metaphorically speaking he got down on his knees to this section of the electors and howled and squealed that all civil servants wages would be left as they were he took another canter to flatter the ladies regarding the remarkably intelligent vote they had cast in the federal elections and asserted his belief that they would do likewise in the present crisis and introduce a nobler element into political life creatures a few months previously ranked lower than an almost imbecile man and with no more voice in the laws they lived under than had lunatics or horses it was miraculous what a power they had suddenly grown the man at the back saw the point blow it all don't smooge so it ain't long since you was all reared up on your hind legs showing how things would go to fury if women had the vote having got past this prelude he proceeded with a vigorous volley of abuse against the sitting government and showed how walker the opposition candidate was the only man to vote for he shook his fists stamped and raved and illustrated how much a voice could endure without cracking the back people carefully waiting till he had to pull up to take a drink out of one of the glasses on the spindly table when they got in with you're mad keep cool you'll bust a blood vessel when are you going to give tomato jimmy a show to blow his horn this being a reference to the calling of the other speaker who was a middleman in the vegetable and fruit market the first speaker however was not nearly exhausted yet he had to thump his fists on the unfortunate spindly table and work off several other oratorical poses and a deal of elocutionary voice-play ere he was finished i fairly rolled with enjoyment of the wonderful wit and humour of the crowd at the back which unless it be put down as the critical faculty is an inexplicable phenomenon not one of the interrupters if drafted on to the hustings could have given a lucid or intelligent statement of his views or indication that he was furnished with any and yet not one slip on the part of a candidate one inconsistent point personal mannerism or peccadillo but was remarked in an astonishingly humorous and satirical style the barrister man having finished spouting the common-sense individual who always sits halfway down the hall and who when he asks a question 
has to face the double ordeal of the crowd and the candidates, said, The speaker has shown us all the things that other fellows can't do. We'd like another speech now, stating what he can do. The chairman rose to say this was out of order, but his voice was lost in the din. You sit down, old chap. We can manage this meeting ourselves. But out of respect to the ladies present. We'll look after the ladies, too, was the good-humoured rejoinder. Why, they're enjoying it as much as we are. They've got a vote now, you know, and are going to use it in an intelligent manner. Did you know Queen Anne was dead? said another. The ladies won't be harmed. Any one that disrespects the ladies will be chucked out. The ladies had to laugh at this, and the meeting went right merrily, and more merrily in that half. The blowing from the stage was drowned by the interjectory din from the rear of the building, where lads and men stood chock-a-block, the former, and the latter too, making right royal use of their license to be rowdy. But such a good-natured crowd could not often be seen. There were no altercations, only laughter and the crude repartee of such a gathering. The first speaker, having returned to his seat and sanity, the second took his place. "'Hello, tomatoes. What's the price of onions and spuds? Now begin, and tell the ladies how intelligent they are, so you'll get their vote.' Tomatoes did butter the ladies, next yelled that the civil servants would not be retrenched, and then upheld the virulent attack on the government. Keeping in time with the utterances of Tomato Jimmy, the boys at the back grew so boisterous that at one time it appeared inevitable that the meeting must break up in disorder. The chairman, the candidates, the ladies, the whole house rose, and one man towards the front made himself heard amid the babel to the effect that the ladies ought to walk out to show their resentment of the insults that had been offered their presence by this disorderly behaviour. "'Ladies, don't go!' "'Dear ladies, don't go,' called some wags. "'We're only educating you in politics, "'learning you how to be like your superiors, men.' This evoked a round of laughter, and order was restored. "'That's right, ladies, don't go. "'If you was to turn dog on us now, "'we'd be so crestfallen we couldn't think about politics "'and save the country at all.' Once more tomatoes belched forth the infamy of the government, and louder and louder he yelled, till one marvelled at his endurance. Rougher and hotter grew his repartee, till, by sheer abuse, he gained the ascendancy. But there was no sane statement of what he would propose as a remedy. Grandma Clay happened to rise as he neared the finish to see about a reticule she had dropped, and proved a target for those at the rear. "'Hello, Grandma. Are you going to contradict him?' Give us a straight tip about women's rights while you're up. And poor Grandma sat down very precipitately with an exceedingly deep blush. If only I could get the chance, she gasped. I'd give him a piece of me mind. Third on the list came Leslie Walker, whose improvement was beyond belief. No notes or hesitation this time. Each sentence was crisp and clear and in every detail he evinced the facility for enacting his role, which is supposedly a feminine accomplishment. The chairman, in closing the meeting, rose to say, in reference to the interjector who said the speaker was mad, "'Oh, that's what everyone said about you when you were in the council, and so you were too, and so are they all. Look at the roads we've got in the municipality,' said a voice. 
so the chairman had to let the meeting terminate with the candidates thanking the electors for the extraordinarily good hearing they had been accorded it being part of the humour of politics that the worse a candidate is boo-hooed the more stress he lays upon the good hearing given him and the more scurrilous he is regarding his opponent the more frantically he assures one that he is a bosom personal friend andrew and i had the distinction of going home under grandma's tutelage while carrie and dawn stayed behind to go to the ladies committee rooms and ernest lingered to escort them i say grandma are you going to vote for that bloke inquired andrew i'm going to hear the other side first and give me opinion after there wasn't one of the swells there was there dr smalley and dr tinker both was yes but i mean the women and how on earth did old tinker ever get away from mrs tinker for that length of time you'll never see one of them kind of women at anything that makes for progress that's the way they make themselves superior to the likes of you and me by never doing nothing only for themselves oh we've got all we want as it is and don't want the vote a woman's place is home they say if you ask em it's all very fine for them as has a man to keep them like in a bandbox they would have found it different if they had to act on their own like me i'm sick of this intelligence in women they make a fuss about all of a sudden i've read a family and managed me business better than a man could and what's there been all along to prevent a woman from stroking out a name on a paper i never could see and it never seems to me much difference which name was struck out for they're mostly a lot of impostors that only think of feathering their own nests you'll always hear of women not being intelligent enough to do this and that and these things is only what men like doin best theirselves and the things they make out god intended women to do is them the men don't like doin you don't ever hear of them thinkin women ain't intelligent enough to do seven things at once grandma was in great form that night and not only led but maintained the conversation i rather like this young feller but he ain't no sense much either all he thinks of is buttonin for the railway people and it's the people on the land that ought to be legislated for first they are the foundation of everything other things would work right after everyone can't live in sydney and that's what they're all making for now everyone is getting some little agency parasite business they've got sense to see the people on the land as the most despised and sat upon you don't hear no squallin about they'll protect the farmer no here's a despised old party that them scuts of fellers on the railway would grin at and think theirselves above and scarcely give him a civil answer if he asked a question about his business what he's payin them fellers there to do for him and which only for the producers wouldn't be there at all things is getting pretty tight on farms now it means about sixteen hours hard graft a day to make not half what a railway man makes in eight hours if you happen to have grapes or oranges if they manage to escape the frost and hail and caterpillar then the blight catches em or there's a truth and there ain't none and if there's any there's so much that there ain't no sale for em and the farmer's life i reckon ought to be stopped as gambling for a gambler's life ain't one bit more precarious then why the deuce do you want me to go on the land said andrew that ain't the point it's the most sticking out point to me protested the lad i reckon bein on the land is a mug's game scrapin like a fool when a feller could be sittin in an office gettin all they want twice as easy here you don't know what's good it's more respectable of bein on the land 
you get the pony out and make the coffee, and hold your tongue. Andrew and I had undertaken to make the coffee for supper, and thus give Carrie, whose week in the kitchen it was, a chance to go to the meeting. They all arrived from it after a time, dawn and the night together, Carrie and Larry Whitcomb following. Oh, where was Dora? Who's that with you, Carrie? asked Andrew. There was a young lady named Carrie, who had a sweetheart named Larry. At the gate they often would tarry to talk about when they would marry. But this remark of Andrew's to parry, Dawn good-naturedly plunged into an account of the meeting. "'What did they do?' asked Grandma. "'Do? They only blabbed. Mr. Walker was there tonight. We asked that Jiminy girl from the pub to join, and she delivered a great parable at us, looking round all the time to see if the boot-licking tone of it was pleasing the men. She said that women ought to bring up their children to respect them.' The most commonest idea some people has of bringing up their children to respect them, Grandma chipped in, is to let youngsters make toe-rags of their mother, and boys only as high as the table think they can check their mother, because she's only a woman and hasn't as much right to be living in the world as them, and when they are twenty-one the law confirms this beautiful sentiment, leastways until just lately, she concluded. And this Jiminy piece, continued Dawn, said women ought to treat their husbands decently and she thinks a woman disgraces her sex by getting up on a platform to speak i asked her if she thought they did not disgrace themselves and the other sex too by standing behind a bar and serving out drinks and grinning at a lot of goods that ought to be at home with their families and that was a bit of a facer then she said it was only the ugly old women who wanted to shriek round and get rights that men would give the young pretty ones all they wanted without asking. Of all the old black gin ideas, I always think that's the terriblest. A nice state of affairs if people couldn't get honest civilised rights without being young and pretty. And the fools, said the girl heatedly, can't they look round and see how long the beauty and youth business will work? Men, she says, ought to rule, they're the stronger vessel and dawn gave inimitable mimicry of miss jiminy of the pub if you take my tip for it those girls that sing out the men of the stronger vessel are the sort that have a dishcloth of a husband and never let him off a string this attitude of mind was one of dawn's distinctive characteristics having that beauty which in the enslaved condition of women has always been an unfair asset to the possessor to the exclusion of worthier traits she was not like most beauties, content to sit down and trade upon it, but had wholesomer, honester, workaday ideals in relation to the position of her sex. She was going to Sydney in the morning for her second singing lesson, and, as Ernest, by a strange coincidence, happened to have business that would take him on the same journey by the same train, I accompanied him to the gate to warn him against inadvertently divulging that I had been an actress by trade. I want to take you into my confidence, I said, as we passed several naked cedar trees, and halted in the shelter of some fine peppers that grew to perfection in this valley, where I related the trouble I had had to bring the old lady round to the idea of Dawn's singing lessons, and mentioned the girl's ambition regarding the stage. Now, I continued, if the old dame were to discover I had been on the stage, she would think I was leading Dawn to the devil and would not credit that no one is more anxious than I am to save her from the footlights, 
or that the best way to stave her off is this training. My secret ambition regarding her, I said, critically, observing the strong, knobby profile, is that within the next five years she should marry some nice youngster with means to place her in a setting befitting her intelligence and beauty. Have you got any one in your eye now? he irrelevantly inquired. And considering he stood where he filled my entire vision, as he rose between me and the light shed by the last division of the western passenger mail, as it self-importantly crossed the viaduct, I answered, Yes, I think I know a man who would just fill the bill. He did not ask for further particulars, but remarked warningly, Decent fellows with cash are scarce. They are inclined to get into mischief if they have too much time and money on their hands. That's it, and I would not like to make a mess of things now that I have taken up matchmaking. You'll have to advise me when matters get out of hand. A little practice may come in handy some day when you have half a dozen daughters. It would come in still handier now. Pshaw, now. You'd only have to ask to receive at your time of life and with your qualifications. I'm not so sure. You're the only one who has such an opinion of me, he said disconsolately. Others look upon me as a red-headed fool with big ears, etc. And thus I knew Dawn's idle words had returned to his ears, as these things invariably do, and had stung. Silly Billy! I'll take you in hand when I've settled Dawn. I'm the one to advertise your wares, for could I turn back the wheel of time eight or nine years and make us of an age, I'd make it leap year and propose to you myself. I'd like to propose to you without altering the time he gallantly responded, apparently not in such deadly fear of a breach of promise action as was Uncle Jake. If I don't move in the matter, Dawn will be marrying that Eward, and though he's a most handsome and worthy, soft as a turnip, contemptuously interposed Ernest, eats too much, and would take twelve months' hard training to make any sort of man of him. It would be a pity to see Dawn just settling down into the dull, drudging life of a farmer's wife, going to an occasional show or tea-meeting in a homemade dress, with two or three children dragging at her skirts, and looking a perfect wreck, as most of the mothers do. By Jove, yes! She has a right to be on the lawn on cup day, or in the front circle on first nights. She'd surprise some of the grand days, and with her vivacity and courage she'd make a furore for a time. She'd make a good sport if she were a man, assented Ernest. No running stiff or jamming a jock on the post or anything like that from her. She'd always hit straight out from the shoulder and above the belt. Yes, she has particularly infatuated me, and I'd like to save her from Eward. Marry him to the girl Grosvenor while you're about it, and that will dispose of him and suit her, for she strikes me as anxious for matrimony. She hasn't been... I began. Oh, no, I think she's a splendid woman in every way, but... But... Even the finest and most chivalrous man, while he thinks the only sphere for women is matrimony, yet is shocked if a woman betrays in the least way that her ambitions lie in the domestic line. Strange inconsistency. However, you will not let Dawn know my ideas of disposing of her. And with the want of perspicacity of his sex, or else with a wonderful power of covering his thoughts, excelling that of women, and of which women never suspect men, Ernest promised without sensing what I had in view. 
End of chapter 16